This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. From disinformation to polarization, we hardly know what to believe anymore. And knowing who to believe isn't any easier. One thing I can tell you for sure, you're listening to Device and Virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights Mm -hmm. of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam, we are talking today about disinformation. I don't even believe you. (laughs) Fake news. It's fake news. There's not a chance in the world. I can't think of it. You've been perpetuating fake news on this podcast for as long as I can remember. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> We're already having an epistemic uh, meltdown. <laughs> yes. Yes, like we are. I like using words like that. You know that, right? <laughs> I do. I know all the big words. See, Gosh. it's when you use big words like that, that I know all my flags go up and I'm like, this we is fake, fake news. I can't even think of why we would be talking about this at this point in time in <laughs> no, history. Not right at now. all. There's just, <laughs> there's nothing that has happened recently that has really caused us to question everything on the internet. <laughs> Do you know, I looked this up one year ago, so January 2020. Okay. Um, by the way, we did not know coronavirus is coming, so one we year didn't. later, You're right. it's us. Oh, but man. we did an episode called, Is Social Media Destroying Democracy? <laughs> Where we, I think we figured out, yeah. We, we should know, have just forwarded that episode to January 2021. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> we were ahead of the times, maybe, or something. But we have to circle back and do talk about it from a new angle, I think. We do. There's so much more to talk about now. So I was over having dinner with a couple of friends the other night. I had just gotten a COVID test actually that day. It was negative. Oh, that good. worked out. They had a baby. They said, okay, you can come over. So it was a, you know, one of those sort of, you're, we're all trying to do bubbles and right. clear those exactly. situations and do that well. And I was with them and my friend told me, she said that on the day of the inauguration, okay, or maybe the day before, her dad phoned her from another state and said, hey, honey, I want you to go to the grocery store and stock up on extras because tomorrow something really big is going to go down. President Trump is going to declare martial law and the whole country is going to change and you might not be able to get things for a few days. And she said, what? Because, I mean, she's just expecting the Biden inauguration and these kind of things. And obviously there's been all this tension around the election and Trump saying that, you know, he never lost. That the election was stolen. That the election was stolen and rigged. There's fraud going on, yeah. And that's a little bit distressing, but there's even more to this because I didn't really know much about Q QAnon. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Her dad starts saying these things and he says there's going to be a big thing on the day of the inauguration where there's a reckoning of some kind and it's revealed that all these documents are going to come out and all the Democrat leaders have actually been hiding children. Yep. A child ring. A ring it's, of some kind? Like yeah. something really... like Really dark. And there, there's people that are, eat children. Yeah, or their blood. And we blood. start getting into a world of like, 
what? And my friend said, hey, dad, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Like, where did you read this stuff? And he's like, ah, you know, when I first heard it too, I thought it was definitely not true, but I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And the she deeper said, I well, looked into it, I the more believe I put it when the I s- points together. She says, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And then, of course, the inauguration happened and it did not happen. And what we did see two weeks prior, of course, was a lot of folks storming the Capitol. I learned now that QAnon, which has been labeled a conspiracy theory, and I think we could say it's a conspiracy theory, had two things they were saying were going to happen. One was a storm, which was storming the Capitol and arresting okay. lawmakers, and another was the uh, the Great Awakening. Where, which was this great revelation. Where it would be this big revelation. That, Everyone would um, confess. Trump would reveal the, would the secret out. plan he had, including the secret plan of losing the election. But hmm. then, which is interesting because actually he's saying it was rigged, but also they were saying that that was intentional, that he lost. Um, okay. Interesting. Which gets into conspiracy theories that we can talk about later. <laughs> but isn't that... How did we get here? Yes. Right? How did we get here? How am I having a conversation about these things? You've had similar conversations, right? Yeah, I have. It hasn't gone that far. They're not proposing conspiracies like that, but there is a deep suspicion of a lot of different things. They're suspicious of one party over the other. They're suspicious of the mainstream media, both on the right and on the left. And they think that everyone has an agenda that they're pushing. And so they've, you know, kind of receded into extremist news sources to really make sense of what's going on. You've been on some late night test conversations. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've continued to try and engage it because I think it's really important not to shut down conversations with people that we disagree with, no matter how much we might disagree with them. Sure. And it's been really challenging. And honestly, it has helped me to see news stories that I hadn't heard about prior. And they're very well informed in knowing a lot of the news events that are happening. And it's caused me to go look up things that I hadn't been exposed to with the news sources that I'm reading. Right. And so I go and read up about what's happening. And in some cases, there are news stories that the news organizations I follow aren't covering. Yeah. And, And that is surprising to me. Right. And it's a little disheartening because I want my news sources to be representative of all of the things that are happening and not just what they think is important or what they want me to have an opinion about. So again, it's been a good conversation. It's been a challenging conversation. And I've been trying to reckon with who do I trust? Which organizations do I trust? Which people do I trust? Which social media platforms do I trust? I think everyone is trying to reckon with that right now. I had one friend just tell me at this point, I don't know who to trust anymore. Yeah. Because it all feels like a huge mess. And so we're, we're talking about disinformation. It's really tricky to do this because I know you or I, we're going to have our own biases and our attitudes. People are going to sort of see that. But we're not really trying to do a political like right, right and left thing. But it's right. so wrapped up into politics it right is. now. We it have is. to talk about that some. And I mean, just where I'm coming from is, you know, like, for instance, I believe that. Trump lost the election fair and square. And so for someone that thinks, well, that might not be true, I just would say like someone might want to stick with us, even if they don't agree with me on that, just to listen to like, how do we know what's true? Mm -hmm. How do we know what sources to trust? How do we sort through this deluge? Is there a way to sort of address disinformation and trust in a way of how technology and how our faith sort of interacts with these things? A lot of these issues really came to a head in the past couple of weeks 
when Twitter finally decided to ban Trump from the platform. And a lot of people took issue with that. And Twitter was followed quickly by Facebook. And, and then eventually they started saying, well, we'll move everything over to Parler, this other sort of right-wing version of Twitter. And then Amazon got in and said, no, we're going to shut down Parler from using our web services. And so Parler kind of got booted offline. And a lot of people were taking issue with this on a free speech standpoint and mm -hmm. saying, hey, mm -hmm. banning Trump from Twitter is really violating his free speech rights or banning Parler from Amazon Web Services is really unjust. And right. it's really silencing the whole right wing of the right. US. And this feels unjust to them. And the other side was saying hate speech and misinformation causes chaos on the system. And you can't right. have a reasonable debate around that. And so Twitter needs to shut this down. And the other legal argument was like, well, these are private companies. They can do what they want. And I think people looked at it and said, oh, this is just evidence that these tech companies are broadly left-wing. They have these bias agendas. And I think the the questions we want to ask are not just do they have a political bias, but are their biases built into the platforms themselves that are yeah. cultivating polarization, that are cultivating these questions around free speech and are cultivating these conspiracy theories that are happening that we're encountering today. Totally. And you, forwarded, you sent this article to me that was really interesting. It was in National Affairs, which is actually a political journal. It's a conservative of political journal, but the article was called Why Speech Platforms Can Never Escape Politics by John Askinus and Ari Shulman. And they said the left argues that tech companies have to limit misinformation and hate speech on the platforms. The right argues for free speech and the platforms are not wielding their censorship power fairly, their bias, what we were saying. But they said, actually, neither one of these views is really going to solve the problem. Right. And that Social media itself, which they are not very positive on, they call it <laughs> hellish three different times, yeah. <laughs> right? They said that social media itself actually creates a hellish environment, a place that gets what you made. Yeah, and I really appreciated that from a fairly conservative news source that they're, they're coming out and really challenging us to think about how is the platform shaping the dialogue that we're having and the issues of trust that we are experiencing. The public square platform. You know, we talk about platforms having biases, or we'll use this media ecology language to talk about the environments that change us almost without us noticing it's changing. Right, us. right. I thought of another analogy for this to help people understand, Adam, and, and tell me if you like this. A platform <laughs> like Facebook is almost like an open mic night at a coffee shop. <laughs> Okay. Like, remember when we used to do those? People would be all in the same room and no masks. That, that um, sounds vaguely familiar. But I don't know if people go to these. You know, there's a way that an open mic night works. There's like a stage and some people sitting out right. in the audience. And to anyone can go up and talk, but there's usually a rule of way to do it. You go in the back and sign a clipboard often right. with the moderator and you right. sign up for a time slot and you get like five minutes. Okay. And in your five minutes, and I'm sure you've done this, right? With your <laughs> beat poetry you would do. Yes, all the beat poetry <laughs> that I'm famous for. <laughs> and when you do this, like people tend to do similar. Th there usually is a bunch of guitars in the room. <laughs> you know, there's some uh, girl that's going to sing a song with three <laughs> chords about the breakup she had. Uh -huh. uh, but it might be really good. Uh, there'll probably be six more of those songs. Yeah. There'll be some poems. Yep. There'll be little things that happen, right? Yeah. But Maybe to, some stand-up comedy if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. And it's usually cringeworthy. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, please uh, back to the music. Yeah. You know, breakup songs. There, no, you can do anything in open mic night. 
technically like anyone can get up and sort of say anything. You sign up for the slot and sort of do it. Right. As long as you follow the rules of how that works, there's a format, right? Okay. But you know, someone could stand up and say something, if we go back to political analogy, they could say something sort of rightish or sort of leftish. Sure. You know, they could do a song about a breakup or they could do a song about a happy day, you know? Right, right. They can do whatever they want. However, the format is you only get five minutes. You have to sort of sign up in advance. And so it means that you're not likely, you are likely to have a five-minute poppy breakup song, but you're not likely to have a symphony. Right, you because the symphony lasts 30 or 40 minutes. And you need a whole orchestra and all these things that don't fit that format, right? Yeah, um, the, the stage is too small for all of the... Yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. You can have a maybe a quick stand-up thing but you're not going to have a, um, a three-act play a comedy play you know like it doesn't work again right. the wrong time the right. wrong format the wrong number of people and so the format constricts even though anything can go on the format constricts what happens yeah in certain ways yeah right is that a good analogy for the way that platforms work i think it's it's an interesting comparison <laughs> he shrugged no and i appreciate it that certain kinds of content are ultimately going to get privileged for a five minute so you're suggesting then that there are certain rules and stipulations in place for these social media platforms that have led us to some of these things the polarization for example or Mm -hmm. some of maybe even some of these conspiracy theory sentiments yeah this article is sort of saying the built-in mechanisms the way that social media like facebook and twitter works is going to create this sort of terrible discourse (laughs) like it's going to create the ability for disinformation to run Mm -hmm. and it's going to create an almost an angry free speech setup because the format right not because of someone that's more political left or to the right, but the format sort of creates these things. Yeah. Now I find that interesting because, you know, people have sort of been taking issue with things like Twitter for a long time for only having 140 and now 280 characters. Mm. It's just bite-sized one-off quotes that we can lob at each other and burn each other with or cancel each other with or, you know, shame tweet. (laughs) <laughs> All this stuff that happens and that on Facebook. I've been trying to shame cheat you and it just doesn't work. I know. Either. You just keep trying, but <laughs> I'm just like Teflon, man. <laughs> you know, but Facebook is ha- has certain features and including, I think, you know, going back to the social dilemma, talking about, you know, the way that it is marketing to people and it's using small, it's using market segmentation to do the work that it's doing and segment people into groups. But you're saying all of those things are really driving us into these polarized spaces. Or at least that's what this... Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, in this article, it says the problems of speech platforms are not just some bad actors at the fringes. Mm-hmm. It says it's they're baked into the incentive structures of the platforms themselves through the kinds of speech they reward or penalize. So something that's a little bit more sensational, a little bit more angry, maybe gets more views or moves up in the, in the place. So it's all about that viral tweet. It's all about that viral post. Sure. If it can go viral, the platform's going to make money and the person's going to get their 15 seconds of fame. Right. Everybody's incentivized to make that happen. Right. Adam, one of the things I've been thinking about 
is maybe it's not just polarization or just social media that's causing everything. I went back to this whole idea of information overload. Okay. Like overloading the circuits where we're in a deluge of information. We've talked about this before. Yeah. People can feel that. I had someone say to me, I don't just know who to believe anymore. But the second thing they said to me was there's just so much out there. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and grabbed James Gleek's book, The Information. I don't know if you remember that. It's a book that's like <laughs> yeah. six inches thick or something <laughs> all about the rise of information in society and where it's going to come from. And you know, we love talking about the printing press. You love talking about the printing <laughs> I press. Do. By the time the 1600s rolled around, there was a guy named Robert Burton in 1621 who said, I hear new news every day. And he was complaining <laughs> about it. It's interesting. I found a quote about information overload as well. It was from the latter part of the 1600s. And this guy named Adrian Ballet, he said, we have reason to fear that the multitude of books, which grows every day in a prodigious fashion, will make the following centuries fall into a state as barbarous as that of the centuries that followed the fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> the hot take of the 1600s. And honestly, he might not be wrong. We just haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Do you remember CD-ROM collections? I never had a CD-ROM collection, but you did. <laughs> what like you could buy? Like this was like really early days of like it's sort of not the internet, but we have computers. <laughs> there was a CD-ROM collection. The British Museum, the, like probably one of the most famous museums yeah. in the world, like in the '90s, released a collection of all of English literature, 165,000 poems. Oh wow! By 1,200 poets, and they were you could buy the CD-ROM collection that was searchable <laughs> for. Yeah, because this is before internet, right? So they're like, if you bought all these books, it'd be worth this much, right? Holy cow. There was a reviewer in The New Yorker. He wrote this column. He said, what hidden jewels shall I excavate, he wrote. And I start (laughs) laughing when I read this. And then he says, but then comes the flood of bombast and mediocrity. The sheer unorder begins to wear you down. Oh my gosh. Never have I beheld such a magnificent tribute to the powers of human incompetence and the blessings of human forgetfulness. And he was saying like, this is too much. (laughs) We can't, this is stupid. Yeah. The idea that an editor sorts through these and finds the really good ones is a blessing. And we forget the bad ones. Right. It is a blessing. Don't you think that people now, when they read, when they open up Google News or whatever they do, they just feel like they're flooded and there's no one sorting through what's good and what's bad. And Nicholas Carr is another guy who talks about media. He said, information overload isn't a sign that our filters have failed. It's a sign that our filters have succeeded. And what he meant by that is that there's so much out there on a single topic that even if we filter everything out, we still have that one topic that we're super interested in and we can't read it all. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Because there's so much. There's just so much. We can't even decide, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Right. We Everything we're going to say, I'm going to do that. Like check, check, check. It's all of them. It's it's still <laughs> overload. I think this breaks people down. And it gets to this disinformation point where people are like, I don't, I don't have the ability to do this. This got me into thinking about epistemology. <laughs> oh, here you are with your big words again. I know. Well, we know what it is though. It's the study and this matters for disinformation right now on 2021. Mm -hmm. It's the study of what's the difference between knowledge and opinion. Nothing. And and how do we know nothing (laughs) anymore? And how do we know things at all? There's a, there's a great scene in the Pixar movie Inside Out where they're on the train of thought and they're in the boxcar and there's a bunch of blocks 
And Wait, it's called the train of thought. I, I, love, I think so. It's something like that. <laughs> I hope it is. That's and it. there's there's two boxes. There's a box of opinions and there's a box of facts. And uh. at one point, the boxcar jerks and they all fall out and they just start like scooping them regardlessly back into these two boxes. And they're like, "Wait, wait, no! <laughs> and they all got to keep those things separate." They're like, "Nah, oh, nobody right. does that." <laughs> <laughs> that's so huge right so like epistemology like thinks out how do you sort those things the boxes like from knowledge yep. and opinions yep. and so I actually looked this up in the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy but like there's honestly five ways that we know anything wow just five ways well I mean you know one is just your five senses right like who okay. you know like what you touch what you see okay uh, if I punch you right now you're gonna feel it and yep. you know that I <laughs> I will I will know that something happened um, of course unless you knock me senseless I hope that happens but of course that that's pretty reliable, right? But it's not perfectly reliable. If anyone that's looked at an optical illusion realizes mm. your eyes can trick you a little bit. Okay. So most of the time reliable, but we also know it can be tricked. Okay, senses. Another one is introspection. Just like I know inside myself, in my brain, that maybe I'm tired or I'm excited or mm. I'm depressed. That's, and that's a kind of special knowledge that honestly there's no proof for. You just know it. That's how I know most things, though. Introspection. <laughs> yeah, that's true. yeah. Okay. Introspection. A third is like memory. So that's just like philosophers talk about that way, things that we remember. Okay. A fourth is like reason. And this is how we think about this a lot like the logic, what you learn in college, empirical knowledge, science, you know? And that's, I've never figured that one out. <laughs> and that matters. It's huge, right? Yeah. Uh, how do we have a vaccine? It's empirical knowledge and research. But the fifth one is the interesting one to me because it's like testimony. Philosophers say we learn things are true from other people. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, like right. that's like the, the fifth category. And so that could be like friends or family. Right. They just tell you something. That's how we all learned as kids. Our parents right. taught us stuff. Right. It could be a stranger. You could ask, what time is it? And they tell you what time it is. Right. How do you know that stranger is not lying to you? <laughs> or like that that's the actual time. It's For true. some reason, you just sort of trust that. Or right? that they're from another time zone and they didn't change their watch. You never know. <laughs> right, right. Like, how do we know testimony is reliable? And mm -hmm. if you think about this, this question matters a lot for deciding, say, whether an article on Facebook from the Washington Post you think is reliable. Because what is a journalist? Right. A journalist is someone that's saying, I've seen this, I've talked to people, and now I'm going to write that down so you can know it. Right. There's a chain of trust that's being built there. Yeah. Right? Honestly, experts and professors are similar to that, too. Like, right. I haven't actually touched it right. myself. Right. I don't necessarily know it internally, but when my chemistry professor right. tells me, you mix these two chemicals and it makes this thing, right. they might be able to show me, but most of the time I'm just trusting them right. that they've done that or they know it. Right. 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 And people are having this interesting collapse of like i don't trust journalists maybe for instance say someone thinks that but that really starts collapsing in itself do we trust anything that someone tells us in the form of a testimony yeah it is really interesting when it comes to journalism and i i think this challenge of information overload this challenge that we're encountering all sorts of information and in some cases it feels like contradictory information so this journalist is saying one thing this journalist is saying another sure. and I don't know how to actually rectify those two things. And so I've got the testimony of one person. I've got the testimony of another person. Yeah. But I have to then go do the journalism myself. 
Right, which I'm, is which is impossible. <laughs> right. I mean, to be honest, I was in D.C. in December because my sister lives there, and I got to ride down to the Capitol. This was before everything happened. And okay. I saw the inauguration stands being yeah. set up for the inauguration, so I could actually verify they are getting ready for the inauguration. Yeah. yeah. But most of the time, you just read that in the paper. Right. Online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're reading a paper, or you're watching it on TV or YouTube, and yet now we have deep fakes, and we have Photoshop, sure. and we have movies that can do crazy stuff that looks absolutely real and none of it is real it's all been green screened right right and that's even messing with our senses the the very first thing yeah this challenge of social media is that it's pushed all of this information to the consumer to the end user and they're being forced to distinguish one thing from another thing and figure out how to bring those two things together. The biblical analogy it reminds me of is doubting Thomas. Mm. You know, the other disciples say, we saw Jesus. Yeah. And he doesn't trust the testimony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he doesn't trust the news. And he says, I have to touch it. You know, I have right. to actually see it and touch it. I have to get it firsthand. And these are people that he has spent years with. Yeah. Which is crazy, right? It's crazy. And we see this as a story of faith, but it's a sort of a story maybe of a, maybe epistemology, this big word, this trusting others. There is some faith to it, right? Mm-hmm. You're sort of saying, Mm-hmm. I have faith that what this other person says is true. Well, and I also think about in scripture, it talks about having multiple witnesses to oh, yeah, verify sure. something sure. or to, when you bring a case against someone, right. you have to have multiple witnesses right. who bear witness on danger of perjury and other consequences right. that they say, yes, this happened. We saw it. We experienced it. We can verify this person did that or this happened Absolutely. to this person. And of course, I want to argue that all good journalism yeah. does that. That's the that's the discipline yeah. of journalism, right? Like, they ha- despite you have what to people have two say sources. is the New York Times doesn't just write down anything. They have to cross-check mm-hmm. that. They have to source it. And then there's an editor that checks the facts as well. And so, right, right. and then they will attract and print a correction if it's not the thing. And so the idea is you are doing two witnesses yeah. with everything. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's this sense of journalistic integrity that we have relied on for so long, but now we're encountering all of these different facts that seem to be at odds with each other or headlines that seem at odds with each right, other. Right. And we don't know what to do. Right. And then now we melt down into what? We melt down to epistemic nihilists. <laughs> That's my band. <laughs> I wanted to add to your big words, another word, nihilism. Yeah, sure. Which is like nothingness. And there's a guy I follow on Twitter, obviously the most reliable way to talk about anyone. <laughs> you can't second guess yourself when you're about to quote someone. I know, right? <laughs> no, Michael Sikasis has this idea of epistemic nihilism and he says, the arc of digital media is bending towards epistemic nihilism. And he, he looks at things like deep fakes and says, we are so flooded with information and falsification and the ability to manufacture anything to look believable that in the end, we're flooded with all of this stuff and we can't make sense of it. And so we end up with this idea that we can't know anything. And I think that leads maybe to the sense of powerlessness and leads to our next thing, which is conspiracy theories. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, 
but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Chris, I know you want to talk about conspiracy theories, My favorite. but I want you to know that conspiracies do exist. <laughs> like <laughs> people the- have conspired together for things in secret and they exist like... Yeah, paranoid guy what? <laughs> like Watergate. Okay, right? <laughs> there was a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a huge point. I was actually reading this book called The Conspiracy Theory Handbook. <laughs> so this is like how to generate conspiracy theories? Yeah, yeah, no, it's how to be a conspiracy theory. No, <laughs> yeah, it's how to detect conspiracy theories. And that's one of the first mm. points they make that like, hey, one of the things that we should do is like, we should acknowledge that there are conspiracies sometimes, right? Yeah. That people conspire to do something maybe bad, or maybe they conspire to do something good, like throw a surprise party. But Nixon conspired to spy on uh, the Democrats and raid a hotel. And that was a conspiracy that people found through evidence. So the first thing we say about conspiracy theories is skeptical thinking is okay. That's what I'm looking at you with right now is skepticism. (laughs) I mean, but this conspiracy theories carry more than skeptical thinking. Because a lot of times you'll hear people go, go look at the facts for yourself you know, you sort of hearing this in the QAnon sort of world too. Okay. Like, if you really study it yourself, like you'll see it's all there, you know? <laughs> in some ways we want to say that's really good. That's like the rationalism of epistemology. That's trust, like trusting yeah, sources. Do the work yourself. You have yeah. to be the journalist. Right. But then there's this other thing that gets into overriding everything is false unless, you know, and only this one thing is true. And the conspiracy theory handbook had a number of factors about this. I liked some of these. So I wanted to (laughs) tell you about them. One of them is that oftentimes things are contradictory to detect. These are the little things to detect a conspiracy theory. Right. Um, So if I'm detecting a conspiracy theory, about everything you tell me. I'm going to notice if you're telling me contradictory things. For instance, like there are people that believe that Princess Diana was murdered, but then also they'll tell you she faked her own death, which can't both be yeah, true. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> right, right, okay. right. With QAnon, there's people saying that Trump won the election, but also he planned to lose the election in order okay. to expose okay. uh, a big thing, right? Those can't both be true. Why do they end up in a contradiction like that? Because of the second idea of overriding suspicion, like whatever the official count of it, if the mainstream media said it or the government said it, the opposite is true. You just have to always. Okay. So multiple opposites could be used, but even if they're contradicting each other, they're opposed to the official statement. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I mean, it's like a five-year-old kid who's like really mad at their parents and always goes the opposite. (laughs) Okay. Like, uh, the sky's blue. No, it's green. I just want to be in opposition no matter what. Totally. Okay. So there's a lot of other things in here that they say look for. You know, if you always believe that leader has negative intent, no matter what, never can be a benign intent, always a negative intent. All right. They're always malicious. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Nancy Pelosi shrugs her shoulders. She's signaling to, you know, devils, you know, (laughs) but she might just have an itch on her shoulder. People would do this with Trump, too, to be fair. I mean, Trump is seen as the bad guy in this situation in a lot of ways. However, like, he would sometimes do things that, 
liberals would call out like, oh my gosh, he's like destroying this or canceling this. He might have not really intended to do that. And so people aren't always doing negative things at every second of the time. That's only evil masterminds in Disney movies. Okay. So that is assuming malice yeah. in every action. So the one I really liked in here is a persecuted victim mentality usually comes with a conspiracy theory. Like I am simultaneously someone that is a victim in this situation, but I'm also going to be the hero and rescue it. And I feel like you saw this in the Capitol Hill footage of people they talked to. Okay. When you had people saying they don't believe us, the powers that be are crushing us, Mm -hmm. they're not going to listen to us, but we're here to rescue it. These are signals that it's a conspiracy theory. What you're saying reminds me of Katniss from The Hunger Games. You know, she's sort of the victim of this oppressed society, but she becomes the hero in the story. And you're saying a conspiracy theorist sort of sees themselves in this larger (laughs) narrative of what's going on. They're they're a victim of President Snow and they're going to overthrow him. (laughs) Okay, so being suspicious that others are plotting against you, this idea of malicious intent, what's another sign of a conspiracy theory? Yes, evidence. You're immune to evidence. Like you can say, okay, the FBI closed a one year long investigation into that and it proved that that wasn't true. And that makes a conspiracy theorist usually go... Oh, that's even more evidence that the FBI is in on it. Yeah. President Trump's allegations of election fraud went on and on. And there were numerous court cases that threw out these allegations. Yes. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, that's going to lead you to conclude that the legal justice system is also in on what's going on. Rather than saying, no, they're doing the right Right. thing. And this should lead me to the conclusion that President Trump didn't win the election and is saying things that aren't true. Right. No, instead, I'm going to continue to believe what Trump said. (laughs) And all of these other people involved in the justice system are conspiring. There's no stopping that at that point. And that's a conspiracy theory when no evidence can do anything. Right. And that's... That's why I bring this up, because don't you think that this is how some people feel? Conspiracy theories are a response to I'm powerless and everything we were just talking about, about all knowledge, I don't trust anybody or anything. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's this state of feeling like I can't do anything and I can't trust anyone. And conspiracy theories are sort of this attempt to make sense of my experience of this powerlessness and this loss of community, this loss of trust. It is evidence to me of our need as humans to make sense of what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And this search for meaning and this need to understand my place in what's happening. And I really relate to that. I really relate to this deep sense of like, I don't understand what's happening right now and Mm -hmm. I want to make sense of it and I will grasp at anything that's available to me to help understand what do I do now? How do I act? Because I don't understand what's going on. That feels like the information overload question. That feels like the frustration around this polarization that's happened and the frustration that what I believe about where the U.S. should go is different and it's not getting represented. And so what do I do? I take action based on what I think might be the case. And I'm sympathetic to that because that's very human, right? Yeah. And almost like the way God made us, like needing to order things or needing knowledge, name the animals, take care of the creation. Like I'm just talking about sorting and caring for things and knowing what the plan is and working on it. Right. That makes sense to me. Like, if you feel like you can't do that, yeah, we're going to need to do that. Right. Back on the whole conspiracy theory idea, it's like this sort of 
I am ordering my own little world. I'm figuring this out. <laughs> I'm ordering that thing. And it becomes sort of the secret knowledge that you have that you can share with somebody, you know, that the, the normies aren't, aren't noticing, you know, that's one of the language that gets yeah. used, you know, yeah. like you're Harry Potter and then there's all these muggles out there. Mm. And like my friend's dad who called her and was saying things that like he felt like he had some special knowledge he was going to share with her and give her inside knowledge, you know? Right. And he felt empowered by it. I think we have history on this in scripture. Like in the New Testament, a few times Paul talks about mysterion in Greek. Like most, most scripture is translating mysteries. I think it goes back to, if I recall, like in Ephesus and some Greek Roman cities, you had these sort of cultic religions that were yeah. like you sort of believe that you have a secret initiation yeah, yeah. and sort of like what we, th- we think of cults now like there's some secret knowledge yeah you go to these rituals and then you get the secrets of that right and christianity which of course is not called christianity at the time it's just the way it's people <laughs> like <laughs> is seen as sort of one of those mystery things and some people that are picking it up are treating this almost like ooh, this is a new secret mm, mystery i'm cult. a new insider yeah uh, and Paul is not down with that. And he attacks it once or twice. I think in First Timothy like three, oh yeah, First Timothy three fifteen, he talks about the mystery of our religion is great. And that's that word mysterion. Okay. But he says the mystery of our religion is great, colon. He was revealed in the flesh, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed throughout the world. And he's talking about Jesus. Yeah, so uh, Jesus is the mystery. Jesus is the mystery, and the good news is that's not a mystery. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's actually revealed. He did it to all people so all people could see it. It's not a secret that only a few people know. It's not this secret knowledge. I mean, that's yeah. Gnosticism. So later that becomes called Gnosticism. We call it a heresy. Yeah. Uh, the Mysterion. And <laughs> I think some conspiracy theories are sort of these Gnostic secret knowledge approaches. Hmm. Uh, I can see why people are attracted to that. But clearly we have an example where we say, no, Jesus Christ as the truth will be revealed to all people, not hidden. Yeah. So in the words of the newsboys, I think <laughs> God is not a secret to be kept. Or is that audio adrenaline? <laughs> wow. It's one of I those think two. Newsboys. I think it's, you think it's newsboys. <laughs> and and it's <laughs> Yeah. And it is this sense of like, God is not hiding things from his people. He's not keeping secrets from us. And we can trust that he is going to be direct with us and he is going to give us knowledge plainly. It doesn't mean that there won't be confusion or there won't be uh, a need to press deeper to understand it. Yeah, like studying the scriptures is good. Right. Just like healthy skepticism is good. Right. But it does mean that when we come into that knowledge, we come into a community at the same time. And that knowledge doesn't separate us from others. It actually brings us into greater connection with others. It's a great point because I think one of the solutions for disinformation online might be better community. Chris, community really does seem to be a key way out of the impasse that we feel. As strange as that is in this polarized context, it's actually coming together that I think can bring us a lot more clarity and opportunity. And it's really, it seems, where this article from the National Affairs goes in their thinking about how do we improve 
the social platforms that exist today? Hmm. What can we do in practical ways? What are the features that can change on the platform that could actually improve the community and the relatability and the connectedness that people are feeling how to change the open mic night format so yeah. it, it works for better discourse and less disinformation right and so people are able to share more of who they are and more variety so that you're not just getting breakup songs <laughs> you know and so a lot of the suggestions they make are really about things that natural communities have so hmm. one they mention is limiting the scale and they say the scale of Facebook, the scale of Twitter, their need to impose a one-size-fits-all solution on millions and millions of people isn't realistic Yeah, because those millions and millions of people represent all different kinds of views, all different walks of life, all right. different perspectives. And when you try and impose a one-size-fits-all policy on that many people, right. it's not possible. The whole it idea of a policy work. approach just doesn't work. And so and it makes everyone angry. Right. Everybody gets angry. No one's happy. And so you actually have to limit the scale of what you're doing in such a way that you can have a community that adheres to a collective agreed upon set of norms. I mean, my question with this is what kind of scale do they mean? You know, like, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg getting grilled by Congress talked about community standards and he talked about in different countries, like it's, you know, you would show some things in America yeah. that you might not allow in Kenya yeah, uh, because the culture is different. And that's yeah. like country by country scale. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is legitimate. I think that's good. I think that makes sense. You would do what seems to be appropriate or a lewd or that kind of stuff. It just matters <laughs> differently based on the culture. Yeah. But even in the U.S., we're so diversified. Yeah. We have so many different viewpoints. Right. A national set of norms isn't a small enough scale, I don't think. Yeah, and I think these authors are saying you have to go the way down on the scale. Human scale is becoming a phrase that's used mm. even in urban planning, creating cities that are walkable, for instance, right. is a human scale thing. Right. right. And so it seems like they're saying human scale. I will say, I didn't love, they constantly said in this article that Facebook or Twitter were global platforms and we got to cut that down. And that's sort of true, especially Twitter. For Facebook, a lot of times what we see in our discourse is a smaller scale already in the sense that Facebook shows us messages for 30 or 40 people. And so I'm not sure how it applies there entirely. What are some of the other things they suggested? Yeah, another one, again, that feels a lot like a community is that there's actually a barrier to entry. And, you know, clicks have barriers to entry that are really high, but communities have barriers to entry as well. And they're simply saying, if you're going to be a part of our community, there are certain ways you have to qualify to be a part of that community. In the case of social platforms today, you don't just need to have a pulse to be on this platform. <laughs> yeah, You have to adhere to certain standards. You, there are certain qualifications that you have to have. And we don't like this idea because it sounds exclusive and it sounds Yeah, I think like it's controversial. It removes people from the equation, but it actually allows for groups to find some sense of coherence and some degree of norms around what they agree to. You Almost like you need to give an example. They don't say this in the article, but like, let's say there's a group of veterinarians having a coffee meetup talking about fun animal medical stories. <laughs> okay. And then you have someone that walks in that's never even owned a pet, but they just want to be part of the discussion. Yeah. Maybe the veterinary meetup group could be kind and they could be part of the circle. Right. But that person can't dominate that group. It doesn't make any sense. Like they won't understand the jargon or they won't have the same experiences. And so it contributes to discourse 
when you have people on the same page around knowledge yeah. or on ideas. Right. And I can see this, but it, that feels very exclusionary when people are like, well, you can't be in here. Mm-hmm. But can you see this cutting both ways? Yes. Yeah. But we naturally do this in everyday life. And some of those systems are unjust. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge is that we're trying to make explicit some of these things that are implicit and we are confronting some of the biases that we do have. And we see this right. on a regular basis right. and it's getting called out rightly so but there have to be some barriers of entry for participation you know on the expertise barrier even recently you had a lot of people on twitter saying hey everyone has suddenly become a legal expert on the the court cases (laughs) and they're saying for instance like a court never considered the evidence when you have legal scholars saying hey you guys are not really totally understanding what happened here say with the supreme court and it's not a mystery we get it (laughs) and it's actually fair Yeah. So barriers to entry is another one. They also use this phrase, robust right to exit, which I thought was a strange phrase until they explained it a little bit. And so this is another idea of a online community that could work. better. Yeah. What what they meant is you have to have an alternative that people can go to. So if they're going to be forced out of this community, they have to have somewhere else to go. And in the context of President Trump, if you're going to ban him from the platform, he has to have a justifiable other place to go where he can be heard. Now, you might agree or disagree with that, but that's sort of where they're coming from. And they're not saying that about Trump in this article. This article was written before the most recent events. But it is this idea that a person still has a right to be heard on some level. And we have to, as a society, collectively decide what does that look like? Yeah, they they sort of say if you're canceling them permanently, it's a really big decision. Right. If you're saying, hey, you need to leave this room and go into the next room, it's a less big decision. Right. I, I think it sort of makes sense. For instance, it's a classic legal test on free speech. We believe in free speech, but you are not allowed in America to stand up in a movie theater and yell fire if there is no fire. Like you can be prosecuted. You can't go, it's right. my free speech right. Right. We've decided it makes no sense to, to throw everyone to a panic when, it, when it's a lie. Right. And so it's not protected by free speech. My question is like, okay, but are you just going to push that person over to the next theater and allow them to yell fire there? Whether it's on Twitter or on the other <laughs> platform, it's still not a good idea. So Yeah. You know, but is there a community where it is normative for people to yell fire? <laughs> You know, is that kind of community allowable? I guess. (laughs) So robust right to exit. Do you have another place to go if you're banished from one community? Another one they had was response calibration. And this is the idea when you find something that you dislike, what are your options? So Facebook famously has a like button, but they don't have a dislike button. Yeah, but I want to be happy. Like, so we don't want unhappy things. Right, exactly. And that's the thinking behind Facebook. But in fact, the dislike button actually affords them the opportunity to say more people are responding negatively to this by clicking the dislike button. And we hmm. could we could downplay this post huh. for that reason. But people don't have that option. Instead, if they're going to respond, all they can do is leave a comment. Right. Right, and a lot of times an angry comment or something that's really harsh. Which compared to a dislike is a much bigger reaction. Yeah, escalates it. It escalates it a lot higher, right? And so 
we need these sort of what they call response calibrations. We need to be able to calibrate yeah, the response totally. and have a greater spectrum of reactions versus just like or react with a negative comment. Yeah, and Twitter has the same problem. They call it ratioing, right? If you right. there's a lot of likes on it, it's good. But if there are not a lot of likes, but there's a ton of comments, usually people are mad at it because there's more comments than there are likes. I think it makes a lot of sense. Like Reddit has always had a little bit of a down arrow that sort of like pushes things down that aren't that quality. And you can still find it. Right. Um, but it allows a small negative reaction. Even if the thing is like partially negative, you're not yeah. going to, I don't disagree with all of this, but this isn't great. Yeah. Or maybe the way it's said is bad. I really appreciated this article because it really, for the first time, made the case to me for why there should be a dislike, dislike button. button. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it made a lot more sense. So those are a couple of the suggestions that they made. And I appreciate that they're really thinking through practically. This was a great article to really unpack the dynamics online and the division online. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, it also matches an interview with an urban planner on the On the Media podcast last week. You know, urban planners are people that figure out how public parks work nicely in a community, you know, and... He was saying that it's almost like we've let like three big private companies design all our parks, our <laughs> areas for public discourse. Yeah. And we never really thought about it from the perspective of like, how do we as a community want to design a space where we could talk together in a productive way? Mm. And when you have a profit motive, you like want to serve more ads or get more eyes on it. You do sort of allow for more sensational things. Some people do think Facebook or Twitter are these really sort of big evil corporations. I don't think that at all. But I do think they do have a motive to make some money. Right. <laughs> and so they want more people on it. So a sort of snappy, controversial comment does get more people engaging than like a page long post about the five points of epistemology. <laughs> like it's, but it might be the more helpful idea. <laughs> and how do we have an urban planned central community where people could have discourse as person to person as right. opposed to treating people like objects right. or ditching all that for disinformation? Right. Yeah, we have a PBS for television broadcasting, <laughs> right. but we don't have a PBS for social networks. For Facebook. <laughs> it's uh, hard. I can imagine like a, a version of a Facebook group that we get on in our neighborhood and we talk and we maybe debate ideas, but you're just going to have the person that just throws poop emoji or like, <laughs> I think it's hard to think of how that works. The biggest thing that they said that was in addition to this list is they said you need people that do make decisions that moderate things. Yeah. But those people need to be real people, not the policy or the algorithm. And you need to sort of know who that is. And they said like moderators need to have a face, like a photo, right? <laughs> like someone in your neighborhood, they have like a little fiefdom. They're in control of everything, but they also are making community decisions in a personal way. And that maybe winds up resulting in more true things and more civil things. The authors of this article even said, Hey, we sort of missed the, the old bulletin boards and I thought of like the old AOL chat rooms where I was a moderator back in the day for a little bit and like you could kick people out of the room if they said things and people knew who you were. I'm on various Slack channels and we've had to moderate reactions and responses because they don't fit our community standards. Right. And I think there is an appropriate place for that, but it's not straightforward. Okay, Adam, I don't know if we added much information to the disinformation conundrum. <laughs> We talked a lot. <laughs> but I mean, this is hard stuff. What I think we've tried to figure out is it's not just polarization or left and right. 
the social media technology platforms have created a sort of an open mic world where there are certain rules that favor certain things and a lot of it's not good. And I like the suggestions you just went through of how we might be able to rebuild that world. But I also am sympathetic to why people have ditched it entirely and feel absolutely unsure. And so epistemology-wise, they can't know anything. And they might be down to conspiracy theories. <laughs> I always laugh at sermons that end with a poem. But I did find this T.S. Eliot poem. <laughs> I mean, you could do worse. Out of the, out of the 168,000 poems that are available for $51,000 on, on CD-ROM CD in 1992, T.S. Eliot is near the top of the list. I wonder if this one was on the CD-ROM. Oh, I'm absolutely but sure it was. He was writing this. When does T.S. Eliot write? You know, he's Nin- just, 1920s? Yeah, I was going to say 30s. This is a selection from a poem we called The Rock, and he just felt like he seemed to be writing to our time. He said, Knowledge of speech, but not of silence. Knowledge of words, and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to death, but nearness to death no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? I think my prayer is that out of the information we gain real knowledge and out of the knowledge we can gain real wisdom. It's time, Adam, for vice or virtue. (laughs) Poetry. Poetry? Is that a technology? I don't uh, care. <laughs> I have no idea if that's a technology. It's an edifice on human communication. What? You're reading Wikipedia. Stop it. <laughs> or your CD-ROM, whatever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I think it's absolutely a virtue. It's one of the oldest forms of human communication. And uh, one of my favorite poets is a living poet named Christian Wyman. Yeah, and, I've uh, heard you talk about him. I like, feel like I, I've not read him. Oh man, you're missing out. Yeah. I recommend it to everybody. If you get nothing else from this podcast, take this recommendation. Christian Wyman, <laughs> W-I-M-A-N. He right. is a poet and now I think he's also a professor at Yale School of Divinity. Interesting. Oh, which really? really makes him interesting. Oh, so okay, yeah. He's got chops like nobody's business. He was here in Chicago for a couple decades as the editor of Poetry Magazine. And so it's all a virtue. I'm just going to stop at that. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I was watching the presidential inauguration. and Yes. uh, Oh, my gosh. Whatever. Biden gave a speech, other things, a speech. (laughs) Biden, Biden, whatever. (laughs) But we all noticed the youth poet laureate of the nation named Amanda Gorman. She was amazing. In her bright yellow coat, and had, she stood up there re- and said a it. poem that seemed to capture a lot of where we were at, and the fact mm. that people are divided, and the fact that we would want unity, but there's a lot of confusion. And she said it in a way that was more poignant and did something to our hearts, even though our brain were absorbing the words. Yeah. I absolutely agree. She elevated us out of our own division. I'll be honest. I'm not a huge poetry fan. I don't read books of poetry. I tried to be because I thought it'd be cool. (laughs) I love writing, but I like prose. I've always liked prose. I'm not a good poet myself, but I'm a good writer, but I'm not a poet. And maybe that's why I didn't love it. But because I'm Amanda Gorman on Inauguration Day, I'm saying it's a virtue. (laughs) Well... We post on Facebook about the rest of the episode, Adam, but I feel like people might think it's all fake. So 
We're retreating to device and virtue only that you can use with uh, your sight, sound, or touch. Uh, <laughs> no, no more social media. Oh, us. yeah. That's not going to happen. That's not true. <laughs> Please find us on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> or Twitter. Oh, man. <laughs> and maybe tell us what you think about a solution or a next step is for disinformation and trust. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.